Welcome to a very special 80 Days Christmas mini-sode, where I'm joined as ever by my co-hosts and very good friends, uh, Joe Byrne in, in Galway, Ireland. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Oh, dear. And? Uh, and? And Mark Boyle uh, in Surrey in the Great UK. Great start, guys. <laughs> yeah, and you, ho, may, ho, ho. you may have noticed that we have a, a slightly different introduction for this mini-sode and we have to thank our, our friend Thomas Hoboa as well for supplying that music. You can find a link to um, his stuff in the show notes. Yep, a new up- updated flavor for our mini-sodes. Mm, for sure. But uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different to what you're, what you're used to. We are uh, inviting you all to join us for a little bit of a festive celebration after what's been probably a, a tough year for many of you. Uh, on the menu, we have three Christmas stories, uh, as well as a surprise or two along the way, and perhaps a short sneak preview of what's to come in season five. First off, uh, we want to take the time to thank all of you for listening uh, to the show this year and for supporting us, and particularly to our patrons, who we will be thanking throughout the course of this episode. But first off, guys, what kind of a year did you have? Joe, what, how was your 2020? Um, So much happened and so little happened. Uh, it was it was a i mean everyone everyone had a 2020 uh global pandemics are not ideal for you know traveling and seeing the world yep um i was two weeks away from a trip to cuba when when our country locked down oh really nice. i didn't know that i didn't know oh, that either, actually i don't think yeah, i was going over easter to uh, to lovely plans um so maybe someday i'll see cuba uh, but maybe not. And otherwise, you know, I, I spent the longest time I've spent home with my parents for 10 years. Yeah, same. Which was nice. It was a good place to ride out a, a lockdown. And um, yeah, things are reasonably back to normal in Ireland this Christmas, which is nice. I mean, Potentially worrying. Normal. I mean, there won't be festivities and parties but or smiling or, smi- or smiling's allowed <laughs> or but no smiling. yeah smiling uh, at a distance yeah. is allowed so it's been a difficult year and you know having see seeing people listening to the show has been nice to see that something we're putting out into the into the ether is hopefully giving a bit of an escape to our, our friends around the world who are cooped up for sure than they might be used to that's been a theme of the uh the feedback that we've been getting this year is that uh people are really enjoying the show because they're not able to travel so they're traveling vicariously through the audio of medium which we've been doing for years too so we've been doing for years (laughs) (laughs) um mark what about you how was your 2020 ah you know uh it was it was it was all right on balance uh yeah (laughs) In in February, uh, my wife and I took a, a big kind of uh, splashy resort holiday to Mexico uh, of absolutely oh, yeah. no cultural value. And I remember going around the airport looking at kind of one person in a thousand with a mask on and going, 
wow, people are getting really paranoid about this. <laughs> These people have lost their minds. They can leave of their senses. Uh, so I had the rest of the year to ruminate on uh, on my own abilities to perceive the waves of the future. Mm. Um, um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, really, a really, a really bizarre uh, year, particularly kind of in the middle of the year. Stuff just kind of was was just ramping up and ramping up, um, yeah. and just getting ever ever more strange and unpredictable. But um, uh, yeah, no, overall, it's been it's been fine. Uh, uh, my, my my wife and I have been. We're both working from home. Uh, we we got a two year old, uh, so he's he's a challenging housemate. Uh, but apart from that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's all it's all it's all pretty good. Yeah, as you guys are both aware, I guess um, I I had a lot of changes uh, towards the tail oh, end yeah. of last year. So um, this year is yeah, I, I I moved to Ireland, as the listeners might have noticed, uh, back to Ireland, and uh, yeah, changed my job, changed my whole career basically, uh, and thinking about it the other day i think i i've i've become more thankful throughout the you know the whole pandemic period for small things uh, sure. and small things have been super important this year like i've i've kept i've i've managed to keep hold of my job uh as you said joe managed to spend quite a decent amount of time this year with family and also um i've had a had a kind of a running appointment with a, vo- a very small circle of friends um throughout mm. the throughout the kind of lockdown period so yeah that's been that's been nice I suppose we, we've been practicing this whole social distancing thing for years. Uh, we were like, you know, geography was the reason we couldn't see each other. And now mm. it isn't really anymore. I mean, yep. you know, yeah, Luke, we're on opposite sides of a small country and we haven't seen each other in a year. Exactly. Uh, but yeah. I did get to see both of you guys before all this kicked off this year. Yeah. Sure. So that was yeah, yeah. nice. Um, but um, normally we would see each other a little more often. Yep. Even, even with geography. So now... Just goes to show you that, that you never know what's coming and n- neither do any of the characters and the stories we tell you. Yep. All right. Well, that's maybe enough of a, a, a peek inside our personal lives for the listeners. <laughs> um, <laughs> the gory I, maw of our personal lives. Yeah. We're not that interesting. That's really what they've learned. Yeah. So I Sorry. think I'm going to kick off with my story first. So if you guys, uh, if you guys want to gather around the the proverbial fireplace hunker dam yeah uh, maybe we'll get some crackling <laughs> fire in here is that is yeah that, that'd be nice that'd be nice mm. so i'm going to tell uh the story of the christmas tree uh which is just essentially just the, the history of the of where the christmas tree came from <laughs> is that not Tannenbaum? thank you joe yeah it is but Tannenbaum is, is probably inappropriate, you know, Christmas tree. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, 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 so the Christmas tree obviously is one of the most recognizable symbols of Christmas, uh, seen pretty much all over the world. And so I, I kind of had a hankering to figure out like, where did this, you know, where did this idea come from? So I, I found a couple articles on this. So my, my, my brief research would indicate, uh, from, I'm, I'm going to say, going to quote from a time article briefly, which says, um, a lot of myths surround the origins of Christmas trees. One legend says that Martin Luther, who catalyzed the Protestant Reformation, believed the pine trees represented the goodness of God. And another myth popular in the 15th century tells the stories of St. Boniface, who in the 8th century thwarted a pagan human sacrifice under an oak tree by cutting down that tree, and a fir tree grew in its place, with its branches representing hmm. Christ's eternal truth. So wow. yeah, a reach feels yeah sense. a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Neither of those sound particularly 
plausible. No, yeah. we're, we're, I also love the so, having to explain who Martin Luther is. You know, Martin Luther, yeah, the Protestant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Mr. Protestant. Yeah, Mr. Protestant. He's going to pop up again. One. The I have a dream guy. Yeah, he's going to pop up again. But yeah, I'm I'm gonna move very swiftly from from sort of myths and legends into into facts here in a second. But um, uh, there's also apparently the the ancient Egyptians, as we know, uh, worship Ra, who, if you're not familiar with him, had the head of a hawk and wore the sun in his crown. And uh, during winter, the winter solstice, uh, when the days were at their shortest, the Egyptians believed that Ra had come down with some kind of sickness. And so apparently, to encourage the days to lengthen again, the Egyptians would fill their homes with green palm rushes symbolizing the oh. triumph of life over death so that's possibly an early you know an early kind of christmas tradition almost but um yeah the the earliest kind of solid historical evidence that we have uh, originates in germany uh, as the stories go the 16th century protestant reformer martin luther again oh, is yeah. uh, said to is said and to he, have he was not a catholic been, was <laughs> who is, uh, is is you know wouldn't have made a very good modern day fire warden because apparently he is said to have added lighted candles, wax candles to an evergreen tree. Wow. Quoting from that same article, walking towards his home one winter evening, composing a sermon, he was awed by the brilliance of stars twinkling amidst evergreens. To recapture the scene for his family, he erected a tree in the main room and wired its branches with lighted candles. And I'm surprised they didn't all burn to death, to be honest. But um, yeah, right. that that's apparently where it started, or that's that's where a lot of the 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 research the, the did. decoration, that's, yeah, stuff. the decorations on the tree. That's where it started, apparently. But um, there were other uh, similar winter traditions in other European countries. So in Poland, mm. there's a folk tradition dating back to an old pre-Christian pagan custom of suspending a branch of fir, spruce, or pine from the ceiling, called a podlatznitska during the time of the, the winter solstice. And Georgians, our old friend the Georgians, have their own tr- uh, traditional uh, Christmas tree called a chichilaki, I think. Chichilaki. Made from dried up hazelnut or walnut branches that are shaped to form a small coniferous tree, uh, which are believed to resemble the, the beard of St. Basil the Great, who is commemorated <laughs> on the 1st of January. That's what I've always so, thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but in, be true. In the early 18th century, the custom had become common in uh, towns around the Upper Rhineland, uh, but hadn't spread throughout Germany yet. Uh, And generally, the tradition was largely confined to richer households because wax candles were very expensive at the time. Sure. And it was also seen as a more of a Protestant tradition because of its, I suppose, its association with Martin Luther. So it didn't really spread to more Catholic regions at first. Apparently in New England, uh, the Puritans were very dismissive of, of this kind of Germanic mm. tradition. Um, yeah, well, They banned Christmas. Well, Massachusetts outlawed yeah. Christmas at some point. Yeah, so apparently their, their second <laughs> governor, a guy called William Bradford, uh, wrote that he tried hard to stamp out what he called pagan mockery of the observance. Um, <laughs> and I seemingly mean, the- Oliver... Oliver Cromwell was also not a fan. Uh, Oh, yeah, he banned Christmas a lot. Preaching against the quote-unquote heathen traditions of Christmas carols, decorated trees, and any joyful expression that desecrated the sacred event. So if, if, yeah. if you're out Protestanting Martin Luther, you're too Protestant, Puritan yeah. and, and uh, Cromwell. <laughs> yeah. Like we are kind of primed to not love Oliver Cromwell because of our, our national origin. Mm. Um, but like, I think he has he some great points. Himself. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you have your view, I have mine. Like, it's like, there's, there's, there's too much joy. Stop all of the joy. Yeah. <laughs> too much joy and Irish people. Yeah. <laughs> 
stab, stab, slice, slice. The idea that singing songs about Jesus being born is heathen is spectacular. It is. That's a that's a, a real uh, cognitive dissonance going on there. I think. Um, <laughs> Once in Royal David City. Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. No celebrating. Um, Are you dancing? <laughs> The tradition also made it to North America in the 1700s when a, a group of uh, German Hessian soldiers who were stationed in Canada erected a tree during apparently the, the Christmas of 1781. Uh, okay. And apparently the tree was even uh, present in Pennsylvania German settlements before that mm. as early as 1747. Ah. But uh, the 19th century would see the uh, the tradition go global. So in 1800, we have the first instance of, it, of uh, the tradition in Britain where George III's uh, German-born wife introduced the Christmas tree at a party. But the biggest turning point was in 1846, when uh, the very popular and fashionable royals, uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert of, yes, the Prince Albert, uh, were sketched <laughs> uh, were sketched in the... Of the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Luke. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the single they... ball bearing in the middle of the, the stage. Yeah. <laughs> They were sketched in uh, in the, the Illustrated London News, standing with their children around them uh, at the foot of a Christmas tree. Mm. He was German as well, right? Mm. Or, or I, I so. believe so, yeah. V- via Belgium. He was a... What was he? Saxe-Cotha... Saxe-Coburg? Yeah, I think so. That That's the story I'd always heard, that Prince Albert was the the origin of, of British and presumably that's how it made its way to Ireland as well as part of the the then United Kingdoms. Yeah, suddenly after that, the tree became very fashionable around the world and uh, soon became kind of the, the symbol that we know uh, today. But it's received differently all around the world. So like uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union, the Christmas tree, along with the entire celebration of the holiday, obviously were banned uh, after oh, the October boy. Revolution. Uh, but the government did uh, make some concessions in introducing a New Year spruce, uh, which I think <laughs> I assume is a is a is a uh, yes, you know, a, a totally unrelated tradition yeah. of the yeah. <laughs> the New Year spruce, the changing of the calendar tree um, tree, <laughs> the yeah. comrades log, um, and that that happened in in uh, nineteen thirty five. Uh, mm. And I suppose one of the most famous Christmas trees nowadays is the one at the Rockefeller Center, which is, you know, you know, we see a lot in movies and, and, and kind of, you know, iconic images of New York and Christmas time. And that was first placed apparently by uh, construction workers who were building the place uh, in 1931. Mm. And it wasn't even decorated. They just they just kind of wanted it to, to kind of spread a little bit of festive cheer on the building site. Uh, and yeah, these days it's uh, apparently decorated with over 25,000 Christmas lights uh, and the tallest tree ever placed there was uh, over 100 feet tall in 1948. The Christmas tree, real or fake, is often a symbol of peace and reconciliation. After the signing of the armistice in 1918, the city of Manchester sent a tr- along with a, a lot of other Christmas gifts to Lille in northern France, which has experienced uh, massive amounts of shelling in World War One. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, Mark, but the tree that stands in, in Trafalgar Square apparently is annually gifted by the city of Oslo Indeed. as a token of appreciation for the British support of Norwegian resistance during World War II. They also hosted the royal family, I believe. Hmm. And they have quite a lot of spruce. Exactly. For yeah. a so lot it's it's yeah. a very, very low-value gift. For the Norwegian. Like, yeah. What can we give them? <laughs> What's we, free? We have a lot of these. We have a lot of these. Dirt, yeah. snow, and trees. <laughs> Yeah. Oil? No, no, no. Keep on to that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, in Newcastle, uh, in the UK, 
where the main civic Christmas tree is an annual gift from the city of Bergen. Uh, thanks in part to the, the part played by soldiers from Newcastle in liberating Bergen from Nazi occupation. Bergen. So, and I suppose that that kind of belies that a, a lot of our Christmas traditions are surprisingly new. Mm. Like I think in, in a lot of ways Dickens sort of crystallized the modern Christmas with the, the snow and the goose and the Christmas trees. There's kind of an era then, sort of Victorian era and and, and early twentieth century, is actually where a lot of things we consider as being ancient traditions seem to start cropping up. Even even um, some of the ideas about our festive friend in the North um, start to crystallize in that era mm. as well. Refer back to our Lapland episode for, for more details. Yeah, I've been, I've been pushing the, um, the Christmas episodes, the past Christmas episodes. I think we have four now, uh, not mm. including this one. Uh, so I've been pushing those on, on, on our feed this week. But yeah, um, yeah, if, if you're interested, you know, if you're still in the mood for more uh, festive listening after this episode, then we would highly encourage you to go back and listen to our episodes on, on Lapland or other other Christmas episodes from, from years past. Um, mm-hmm. But now I want to do a little bit of a, a game, which I'm also going to dress up as a, uh, a way to thank our patrons. So uh, for the listener, we're quite worried because we actually don't know what this is about. Yeah, this uh, is this is entirely these guys. Games. These guys are entirely blind. So in the chat box at the moment, guys, and this, in the in the window, you'll see a link to a spreadsheet which should be able to open. <laughs> oh, a spreadsheet! Mm. Nothing's as festive fun like a spreadsheet. Yeah. Happy Christmas to us. Yeah. Why is it in a different language? It shouldn't be in a different language. <laughs> it's not in Flemish. Yeah, it's in Dutch. That's really weird. Uh, Each of us is going to read the names of our patrons uh, as quickly as we can without messing them up. And I'm going to time you guys as to who can do it fastest. So we have each have the same amount of names. Well, Joe, you're going first. So (laughs) so you're going to take the ones. You're going to take the ones in green. Ready? Go. Samuel Vaughan, Tom Hudson, Jess, Charles Thomas, uh, Christian Sebast, Jim Yu, Matthew Downs, Thad Jackson, Christopher Carson, Nevin Martell, Laurie P, Angus and Waylon, the Barefoot Backpacker, Iwan Williams, Aaron Barkley, Nathan Hickson, Simon Green, Colum Macharias, Nick Britton, Emily Cranfill, William R, Molly Desjardins, Emily Browning, and Sigfig. That was 27 seconds. So it's not bad. Well done. Some names there that have been with us a long time. For sure, yeah. So we want to uh, thank and also ones I've never come across before. Yeah. Um, so we want to thank all those uh wonderful people for backing us on Patreon this year. Uh so yes, thank, you. thank you guys uh very much for and your And I'm sorry for for mispronouncing any of your names. You didn't stumble, which I'm very impressed by. Uh well, I, I'm a very competent speaker. You Luke. are. Uh, you are. <laughs> many times and many things. <laughs> and I will continue to, even if you don't want me to. Yeah. All right, Mark, your turn for your Christmas story. Oh, for my Christmas story. Oh, wow. I was getting, I was getting ready to read the yeah. fuck out of these names. No, oh, no, man. no. You get to go I later. I need to rehydrate. I'm gonna flop sweat with the, with the nerves of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Uh, all right. So, um, uh, Luke, you talked about uh, Christmas trees uh, in the uh, infinitive. Uh, I'm talking about Christmas tree, Christmas tree in the very specific. So in in particular, okay. I'm talking about the Christmas tree that is, um, I assume, currently standing aloft and proud in Boston Common. 
uh, in the city of Boston in the, the great state of Massachusetts in the US and where mm. that comes from and why it comes from there. So it comes from uh, comes from uh, Nova Scotia in Canada. It's a, it, it is a gift. And the reason for this gift is because on the 6th of December, uh, 1917, something happened. And something was that uh, just in the larger context, um, the city of Halifax in Nova Scotia had become the the center for the British Navy. Uh, it was World War One. It was towards the towards the the end of World War One, and the British Navy had basically used Halifax as its kind of center of operations um, because there was no Canadian Navy, and because um, as was going to happen in World War Two as well, they were conducting these convoys uh, across the Atlantic. So they they would meet a big bunch of merchant ships uh, at Halifax, a couple of naval ships, and they'd run the gauntlet, try to get across the Atlantic without meeting a U boat. So it was this area of enormous traffic and uh, there was an an event. Uh, there were two boats in particular to draw mm. your attention to. There was the Emo uh, or IMO, uh, which was collecting aid uh, to pack off and send to Belgium, which was one of the most affected countries of World War One. And there was a boat called the Mont Blanc, uh, which was fully loaded with explosives, TNT, picric acid, uh, the high-octane fuel benzol, and gun cotton, as in the cotton you put in guns to make them fire. The, the captain of the Mont Blanc was duly worried that he was, uh, you know, in a floating bomb. Um, and he had asked for a guard, uh, sorry, a, a guideboat uh, to bring him through the narrows uh, just off of Halifax, because there was lots of ships going back and forth. As I say, this was, you know, a, a massive kind of uh, naval operation uh, trying to bring uh, boats across the Atlantic. He was denied. Uh, and as you can probably guess, bad things happened. Uh, in the very narrow stretch, um, there was a uh, very, 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 very slow collision between the IMO and the Mont Blanc. Mm. Um, the IMO was nominally fine. The Mont Blanc, at least initially, was fine as well, except the, the, the jostling from the IMO knocked over some barrels, some liquid spilled onto the deck, it spilled down uh -oh. the sides, spilled into the cargo hold. Um, the scraping between the boats sent up some sparks, lit the, oh, lit the fuel, and mm. the boat starts to catch on fire. Um, pretty quickly, the crew realize what's happening. They get into the into the lifeboats and make a break for the I can, coast. I, I, I can um, just imagine in the in the you know possible sort of immediate seconds after the collision, the two captains kind of like looking at each other and giving each other the thumbs up, like, "Oh well, that could have been a lot worse." <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, glad we neither of us sank or or anything. And then, yeah, oh god, this this yeah, it, this it sounds it 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 goes horrendous. out of control pretty quickly. I would say so. Uh, so at, at 9.04 um, a.m. and 35 seconds, the boat explodes. It was about 20 minutes after the fire started. The explosion was so strong, it exposed the bottom of the harbor. It sent an 18-meter mini tsunami towards Whoa. the coast. The temperature at the center of the explosion was 5,000 degrees centigrade. Um, there was a gun uh, on the Mont Blanc. It was a 90 millimeter gun. So, you know, the kind of gun that you stick on a ship. It landed five and a half kilometers away with its oh barrel mounted. The, the, the um, anchor of the Mont Blanc, the, the shank of it, weighing half a ton, landed 3.2 kilometers away. Um, and there was a cloud of smoke three and a half kilometers high. Um, the shockwave was felt 207 kilometers away. It's it's Canada, so a lot of these are kilometers. So yeah, <laughs> for, for those on Imperial.
I think you could tell that that's it's, a lot of yeah, kilometers. Yeah, exactly. a lot in kilometers or miles. More than a few. Yeah. More than a few. Um, and so um, over 160 hectares were, were completely destroyed by the explosion. So it's very close to the city of Halifax, city of Dartmouth. It's, it's, it's basically right in the city center, this thing. Um, the IMO was carried onto the shore by the tsunami. Um, and all but one of the Mont Blanc crew survived because they had actually abandoned ship and had gotten away. Nobody else really understood early enough what was happening, only the Mont Blanc crew. Um, yeah. Now, to the, the, the toll of this was, was really enormous. There was uh, 1,600 people dead instantly. There was 9,000 people injured Ooh. and 300 of them later died. So the overall, the death count is kind of in the area of around 2,000. Also, quite a lot of people in the town were watching the fire. Ooh. They didn't yeah. understand the context, so they were looking directly at it yeah. when the blast wave hit. Mm. As well as the about 2,000 dead, it included an entire Mi'kmaq uh, settlement uh, nearby. It was just completely, Jesus. completely obliterated. Um, some of the, the accounts are really like there's a lot of first-hand accounts of this view if, if you want to look, go look for it it's some of the craziest stuff i've ever heard um there were 5900 eye injuries reported and 41 people lost their sight permanently um uh, i'm gonna hold, bring up one one last thing before i kind of start to pivot towards more positive Christmassy things and it's about, about a guy called Jeez. vince coleman who was 750 feet from where the explosion occurred he was on land. He was working at the train station. He learned of the fire and uh, and the dirt, dangerous cargo that was on the boat. And he began to flee. But then remember, there, there was a passenger train coming. Uh, due to arrive in a couple of minutes. And he ran back to his station uh, and, and sent out some uh, urgent telegraph messages, stopping the train that was coming in, saving probably 300 lives. Um, and the message he sent out read, hold up the train, ammunition ship, a fire in harbour, making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Uh, as I say, he saved 300 lives and he died at his post. So, what happened next? Basically, these messages started to, to come out about what a you know, catastrophic thing had happened. Um, and pretty much straight away, uh, because uh, Nova Scotia is a peninsula and is connected to the Canadian mainland, uh, trains started to come from you know uh, nearby provinces. But probably the the the, the biggest uh, effort came from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, the um, Boston Symphony Orchestra performed a benefit concert for Halifax in the days following the catastrophe. They raised, you know, with that and other activities, about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The fr- they packed this huge relief train with uh, doctors, nurses, an anaesthetist, an ophthalmologist, um, and sent them to treat uh, the, the, all the injuries. Uh, basically, they, they they just kind of heard something had happened and packed as many people, uh, as many medical professionals as they could onto a train and just kind of sent them. They kind of didn't know what they were sending them into. They just knew that something had happened and they didn't really wait for any more details. They were just send people, let them go, 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 go. Uh, and that kind of immediacy of their response has, has led to this kind of relationship between um, you know, Halifax and, and Boston. And so in 1918, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help that the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts um, Public Safety Committee and all the people of, of, of Massachusetts and, and Boston contributed in their response to the, to the disaster. But actually, from then on, Halifax and Nova Scotia no longer commemorated it. It was, it was seen as such hmm. a traumatic thing. And as was the site at the time, the view was, uh, let's just never think about it again. <laughs> Basically, that was it. They they no longer commemorated uh, what happened that day, which, considering its impact, 
was absolutely crazy. Um, as as well as the explosion itself, there was then a massive uh, uh, you know a snowstorm came in, so people were in really dire straits. Um, and it was it was really traumatic for them, and they, they basically you know I guess as as is their right, they decided we shall never speak of this again. Effectively, uh, until. Uh, in the 70s this podcast well no until 1971 <laughs> the uh, lunenburg county which is an area of nova scotia uh, the lunenburg county christmas tree producers association decided to revive this tradition uh so there, there is an element of a cynical marketing gimmick to this uh, i'm not gonna deny that uh it's it's very nice nonetheless uh, and they they have continued to keep up that tradition to this day thank you that's that's a really interesting story yeah 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 horrific but uh <laughs> Uh, Merry Christmas. Okay, and, and you can go on the third hole, Luke. Okay. Ho, <laughs> ho, ho. James Graff, Liam, and Asaf, Andrea Philhegadu, uh, Brad Wilgus, Brendan O'Keefe, Ryan Fink, Jonathan Bellack, Ellen Rachel Myers, Oshin Brennan, Caroline, Fiona Flavin, Bernard Quinn, Sean Hurley, Corianne Wilson, Henry Trinder, Ingrid Boyle, Mark Christopher Kratt, uh, Emily Eggman, Justin Weber, Teddy Bear Tribunal, Fred Turkington, and Pavel Aronin. That's uh, 30 seconds, 24 oh. milliseconds. Okay, you're in the lead for um, now, Joe. And I would I would like to extend a, a, a massive, a massive happy Christmas to the Tribunal family in particular <laughs> for, for their... Uh, the Teddy Bear Tribunal their, family, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, Joe, your turn for story time and I, i've just realized we are coming up on the length of our first episode so yep, this this mini sode is going to be longer than our first official full-length episode so um yeah the tale has grown in the telling for sure um joe well i'm going to try and be as quick as possible i've actually even written a kind of a script which is very unlike me okay my favorite christmas decoration is the crib Trees are fine. You guys seem to like your trees, but Joe's going to make a case for the crib. I just, uh, you know, I think that the, that the tree is a recent innovation. It's um, it's not particularly related to Christmas. It's kind of more a North your Euro- your North European winter thing. Martin Luther would disagree with you, Joe. He would. <laughs> um, and being a you know a, a filthy Catholic. Uh, that's okay, I suppose. <laughs> I don't think he said people are filthy Catholics. <laughs> I mean, he probably did at some point. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so every crib features, as a key part of the nativity scene, is a, a star or some kind of celestial body, at least. Okay. The the true nature of the star is up for debate, which allows me to, to you know, tell this story. But this, this, this cosmic cosmic body heralding the birth of a new king you know looking at the stars and looking at the sky and seeing patterns in it is part of what humanity has been doing for as long as we've had any kind of civilization um so i thought i'd talk about a cosmic entity that has had a few run-ins with christmas day over the centuries more than you'd expect so i'd, I'd like someone to keep track of the number of christmases in this story okay uh, potentially with a bell or a buzzer or, or maybe I can ring my own little bell every time there's a Christmas. Because I, I, I think this this particular um, little uh, dirty snowball of <laughs> ice and carbon dioxide and ammonia uh, whizzing through space uh, has really had a lot of Christmas adventures 
um, when it's come coming to our neighborhood. Are you bringing science and into our is, Christmas episode, Joe? Is of course it? I am. <laughs> so the, 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 the entity in question is Halley's Comet. Ah, okay. I'm so, down with this. The story, well, when does the story begin? The story begins, I don't know, in the orc cloud millions of years ago, probably. Uh, who knows? But I'm going to start the story uh, on Christmas Day, 1642. Okay. That's one Christmas. Okay. Uh, the birth of famous gravity aficionado... Uh, Isaac Newton. Newton? Yes, yeah. Isaac Newton. No. <laughs> I didn't realize there was a quiz <laughs> element to this story. Okay. Of course. He was born on Christmas Day, 1642. Um, after a, a, a long and productive life of Apple related concussions, in 1647, Newton published his Principia, which is an important book, uh, outlining his laws of motion and. It's like Newtonian physics is still used, but basically it, it explained why planets go in elliptical orbits around the sun and why that mathematically makes sense All right. because of gravity and so on. Um, so finally, the the heavens were explainable through maths. Good work, Newton. He couldn't quite figure out comets, though. So okay. people knew about comets, you know, these streak you know, stars with beards is how they're often shown in ancient really? manuscripts because yeah you get this kind of streak of um oh yeah but of wouldn't I call it stuff a being jettisoned like on the solar wind so you often see yeah a tail a tail or really a tail unless a beard oh, yeah. grows off the side of your head like <laughs> <laughs> well they can point any direction depending on where the sun that is, is true uh so anyway, he couldn't quite figure out comets in his theories but he was he was suspicious that um, one he had observed in 1680 and 81 must have been the same one on its return leg around the sun. So he, he had a fair idea that comets were also doing orbiting. things with gravity, but okay. his maths wasn't quite there. It would ultimately fall to his friend and his publisher, Edmund Halley, to apply the new laws of physics Ooh. to comets. So he wrote a book on this. Uh, he had to consider the effects of Jupiter and Saturn and sort of slowing down and speeding up comets to sort of fully make it work. And that was, I think, the, the key missing ingredient. So he compiled all these big tables of data on comet observations in the past. And he, for reasons I don't fully understand, uh, not being a physicist, reckoned that the comet he'd seen in 1682 and previous observations by peter appian in 1531 and johannes kepler in 1607 were the same comet so something to do with their um beard yeah their their shape or their size or their position in the sky he saw a pattern and so halley's remarkable conclusion was that this was the same object returning every 76 years or so which was definitely a different take on a sort of random portent of doom version of Comet uh, <laughs> understanding that that had been in, in, in vogue uh, up to that time and so he predicted it would be seen again in 1758 Christmas Day oh. 1758 very nice the long awaited Comet's return was observed by Johann Palich exactly as Edmund Halley had predicted confirming his hypothesis and gaining it the name Halley's Comet um, all right. which was popularised in, in the literature at the time that we all know today. Sadly, Halley himself had died 16 years previously. Okay. So he, he didn't get to see his um, prediction come, th- come true. 
but his name lives on although nobody is quite sure how he pronounced it so i'm i'm going with oh, really because apparently that's how most people with that surname nowadays pronounce it but holy Haley have all been ah. written and the spelling was variable I don't know. okay but his name lives on in written form so that's two christmases two christmases okay Ancient Chinese, Maya, Roman and Mesopotamian records of comets have all been ascribed to Halley's Comets. This pattern now has been seen to be going back thousands of years that there's been this 76-year interval-ish. In 1066, the comet appeared, presaging doom to the English King Harold. Uh, It's depicted on the bio-tapestry alongside Harold with an arrow in his eye. Um, So... Was he looking up at the comet at the time? (laughs) No, I I think... Would you look at this? Oh, I think there geez. are different parts of the quite long tapestry. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the victor of that fancy carpet was uh, Guillaume Batard of Normandy, was crowned King William of England in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day. Uh, Christmas Day, right. 1066. Mm. Three Christmases. <laughs> Just pretty good for a ball of rock. Yeah, like. yeah. So, um, this one's kind of shoehorned in, but, you know, let's go. Mark Twain, the writer and wit of, of early 20th century America, uh, he, well, late late 19th century, early 20th century, he was born in 1835 as the comet was, was visible. Okay. And he always insisted that he came in with it and it would be his greatest disappointment of his life if he didn't go out with Halley's Comet. He promptly died on April 21st, 1910, the day of the comet's perihelion. And this was actually the first time the comet was photographed, obviously. Mm. Um, there's no explicit Christmases in this this little bit of the story, but Twain did write a very sweet letter to his daughter Susan, whose uh, letter to Santa Claus had gone unanswered, um, which is, is worth looking up. It's, it's very touching. And, uh, you know, people called Mark, born when Halley's Comet is in the sky, are, you know, I think, I think, I think Mark Twain was the only one. No. 1986 um no, no. my my uncle actually no, told uh, me a story about how uh he he was he was actually looking at Halley's comet uh when he was told this is a portent of doom <laughs> we we didn't get on for the first few years i was a usurper he called me a little pup and used to steal my crisps but uh he was only 12 years older than me and uh he was he was at secondary school he was at a boarding school uh because we're prods and uh he uh yeah martin luther martin luther prep yeah uh make, making his his uh fireball christmas tree uh as they do every year and um he was telling me that he he, he had been brought out to uh look through a telescope at halley's comet and that uh that later that day he was he was told i i'd, I'd been born so yeah huh so you, you know cool. um so is it nice to know exactly when you're going to die? <laughs> I I have had the Mark Twain thought that like if I <laughs> if I see Haley's comet, everything else is a is a bonus. Uh, I'm well, up for that. You, you, that was different to his attitude. He was like, I don't want to see it. I want to be dead. Oh, uh, right. So okay. I mean, I listeners, you'd be glad to know we've got Mark for another uh, forty-one years, uh, which I reckon is probably what thirty seasons. We're we're oh, we're we're ticking along with about a season a year, so yeah, yeah we can yeah. we can, yeah. So I think we'll cover the world by then. We will have covered uh, every country by then for sure. So finally, uh, the, the the comet would have been seen in about twelve BC, which 
is a little early for the conventional birth of Christ. Mm. Um, but given there's a lot of dispute about this, there's the possibility that Halley's Comet was the sign that pointed the Persian Magi to Bethlehem on that special time we celebrate now. So, yeah, stretch. I mean, there's also the possibility it was a conjunction of Jupiter, Mars and Venus in the western sky, or it was a, a shooting star or a supernova, of which there would be no record. But yeah, so um, as I said, what was Halley's Comet standing over Bethlehem on that snowy Christmas tree decorated uh, stable? Eating their mince pies. Eating their mince pies. <laughs> Tuck it into a turkey in the inn. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of Christmas traditions are, are tenuously linked to Christendom. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to call that three and a half Christmases. I give you three and uh, a half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the half very nice that was the half <laughs> nice half Mark 27 and a half seconds is the time to beat alright are I've you got, ready I've got a lot of which uh, is exactly three and a half Christmases yeah in, there's a couple of challenging uh, names years. in here are you ready okay three uh, yeah, le- two yep. one go Dermot Hurdy, Paul Select, John Fitzpatrick, Paul Donnelly, Aaron Brinkley, Peter Hodovsky, Bob Miller, Sean, Amory Dryden, Kjartan Barham, Mark Wood, Jefferson Airplane, Darren Clark, Owen Byrne, John <laughs> Keating, Riley Horton, Danielle Biaf, or Biaf, Erin uh, Cathro, Gregory Craddock, Bradley Foster, Sam Thorpe, Andrew McJury, Alec, sorry, Alec Richmond, Susan Hearn, James Ladden, and Thomas Burridge. Ooh, 25 seconds flat. Oh. I can mark the Christmas Christmas Patreon winner, I guess. Oh, I win. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah. Does that mean he now owns those patrons or? That means all uh, the patron money goes to Mark. My, my specific oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Joe and I are cut out uh, until next year. So. Uh, that that's that's how it works. Yeah, uh, we have all. That, is, our that is how this game yeah. works, yeah. apparently. And then I have a, a one last surprise for you guys. What would Christmas be without a, a little quiz, a little uh, trivial pursuit? So I've got a few yeah, questions lined up for you guys. Thing. If you're okay. if you're if you're willing please, to, please let it not be about our show because you know I erase <laughs> yes, every screen of information as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> We've literally been like 20 minutes into something and, and like completely I'm, I'm forgotten. Something. I've talked about another episode or something like it. It, it. it happens. Yep. So the Spanish were these guys right beside Portugal. I've never heard it myself, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is about our, uh, our show. So who wants to go first? Uh, I'm going to play you guys off each other because obviously I'm not going to take part. Um, Gibraltar. <laughs> uh, no, that is not correct. <laughs> I'll, I'll go first. Okay. I love quizzes. All right. That was my favorite primary school uh, extracurricular activity. Didn't play any sports. I played quizzes. <laughs> well, you've, you've a chance Everything to get one up on now, Mark right? here after winning the, uh, the Patreon race. So, uh, in which episode, Joe, did our friend Ferdinand de Lesseps first feature? Uh, Must have been Panama. Yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah. Mark... In which place that we covered uh, featured an albatross on the flag? Jeez. Um, Pitcairn? Uh-uh. Nope. Uh, it was quite recent. It was Tierra del Fuego. Is, 
Oh, oh, God. Yeah. oh yeah. Stylized, stylized albatross. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I feel like this is too easy of a question, but I don't have a backup. Good. <laughs> uh, which was our first and only two-part episode? Cuba. Correct. You just have to rub it in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think of all the on-site recordings I could have edited back into the episode. That's true. Uh, Mark... 2020. What was the name of the city that is the capital of Lapland? Oh, man. Oh. It's where Lordy are from, Mark. Is, is Lordy more than one person? I thought that was like a <laughs> Kiwi girl, no? No, no, the, the Eurovision winner. Oh, God, is all right. Okay. <laughs> I all right. Don't know. Um, ah. Ah. Capsilutit something? <laughs> no. I just made that up. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm sorry. Joe, I think you know this, do you? It's Rovaniemi. You can read things fast, but I can read things <laughs> correctly into my head permanently. Read things that exist. Joe, Christmas of 1941 is known as Black Christmas in Hong Kong. Yes. On which day... That was our most cheerful Christmas episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On which day did the colony surrender to the Japanese? Ooh. The 6th of January. Incorrect. Mark, do you want to take a guess? Uh, New Year's Eve. It was uh, Christmas Day, 25th. No. Uh, Christmas right. 1941. Yep, at 3 p.m. All right. And Mark, uh, last question. On November 18th, uh, 1497, Vasco da Gama and his crew encountered a huge bay which they named uh, False Bay. What is it called today? Or what is that What is that place called today? Ooh. Uh, you wrote this episode. <laughs> I know. I, re- I read a book. I read a whole book about this. I bought it and I read it and then I set it out into a microphone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's where, where Cape Town is. Uh, that, that is correct. I mean, that, Cape, hey, Town. Yeah. Cape Town. Cape Town. Okay, great. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, we will accept Cape Town. All right. Uh, is that, uh, so what, Mark, you got one? <laughs> is that right? Okay. Did you have to count that, Luke? Did you have to yeah. count one? My uh, versus Joe's two. Do you guys want to try to tiebreaker just in case? <laughs> sure. I, mean, I only got two. Yeah. Uh, we can just do it just for fun. Uh, tiebreaker was what song was played uh, during the first human musical performance in space? Uh, Jingle Bells? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that was Jingle Bells. Played on a, on a harmonica by astronaut yeah. Wally Shira. Okay, so yeah, we have plenty uh, in store for you coming very soon in season five. I've already got a couple of those episodes uh, in the can. So yeah, from the three of us, I suppose, uh, a great festive season. Happy New Year. Hopefully will be less um, disruptions in 2021. Bananas, yeah. yeah. And thank you to all That's... the patrons. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, yes, thank you to all the patrons. Who you, we, you guys we are the real. Your names. The real. And we will see you in the blissful year of 2021 yep. with more days. What? We must be nearly up to 80 days at this we're point. Getting we're getting close. We're getting there. Might have to do something for the 80th episode. <laughs> 40 days plus some mini 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 days yeah yeah (laughs) all right merry christmas merry christmas
Dale, Kenia.